good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Josh, our board operator. Patty is calling from home and our guest is Shelly Skeen. Shelly is a, um, uh, a, an attorney with Lambda Legal uh, and we're going to be talking about the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, Jewish Music Hour was just over. Tonight is Yom Kippur uh, and there's a Jewish tradition that on Rosh Hashanah, God starts writing the Book of Life for the next year, and that's sealed on Yom Kippur. And uh, we don't understand why some people are entered into the Book of Life. It's not because you've been good or bad or, you know, it's not a Santa Claus thing. It's just, it's decided who's going to live and who's going to die during the next year. But those who die on the eve of, of Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of the new year, are considered tzedeks. And a tzedek is just a wise person. But it's, it's, a, it's a wise person um, who uses uh, great righteousness and does things to help other people uh, with nothing in it for themselves necessarily. Um, so the tradition is that if you've died on, on Rosh Hashanah, you were not in the book of life, but God kept you around as long as possible. Well, we... All that, all that applies to Ruth Bader oh, Ginsburg. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I spent a, the whole week studying Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, for an article I wrote for Dallas Voice, and I call Shelley Skeen. Shelley is the senior attorney at the Dallas office of Lambda Legal, and we were talking a little bit about her, and uh, we're not going to get everything in. Uh, Shelley, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Hey, David. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the LGBT community uh, wrote in our, not wrote in our favor, but voted in our favor in the Romer case, the Lawrence case, the Windsor case, the Obergefell case, the Bostock case, the Masterpiece cake, uh, case. Uh, she was with us all the way. In everything. Solidly. And as women... I think. Hey, Shelly. <laughs> oh, hey. Hey, Patty. How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> as, Good. as women, she holds a really special place in our hearts. Well, she founded the ACLU uh, Women's Project. There had never been anything like that before. Uh, it, it's what got women um, things like equal pay. You can't be fired because you're pregnant. You know, all kinds of little things like that uh, that just seem normal, why wouldn't you get paid the same thing for doing the same job? Yeah, imagine Shelley, that. why wouldn't you? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Um, you know, and still not, for all practical purposes, we're still not <clears throat> paid the same as men, and certainly if you are at an intersection, so if you are black and a woman, the odds against you are even worse than it is for white women or Hispanic women, the same thing. So even though we're moving further along and Justice Ginsburg was, a, a, you know, a huge architect of that and almost, not by herself, she had many, many people that helped her, but she was really the catalyst for women's, you know, gender equality and without her, uh, we wouldn't probably Patty and I might be sitting at home having a baby right now and <laughs> or what have barefoot <laughs> and, and you know what if Patty was home having a baby I wouldn't be here either because I'd be sitting there just laughing <laughs> <laughs> all that aside come on uh, Patty have that baby <laughs> I want to see you do it 
Let's not even go there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's let's not. But um, yeah, she was amazing. And I'm sure at the ACLU, there were probably people and and, and supporters even who said a women's rights section, huh? Mm-hmm. You know what's that? Well, you know, well, because it had never been done before. Nobody thought about it. Well, and she writes that she wrote the first case book that looked at sex dis- discrimination from a gender standpoint. Um, and really was the architect starting in about 1971 with the Reed versus Reed case. And then you had uh, Frontiero versus Richardson. You had the Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act in 1978. Um, you had the VMI case where she actually wrote the opinion as one of the justices. But if you look at overall what she did uh, for women in the military, uh, there's a, a case called Strunk. It's probably one that's not um, as well known. And it was a uh, captain in the uh, one of the military services. I can't remember if it's the Navy or the Army. And she was pregnant. And the military said, hey, you've got to get an abortion. This is not too, you know, right around the time of Roe v. Roe v. Wade. You've got to get an abortion or you've got to give this child up for adoption. And she was a Catholic and she said, you know, I'm not gonna have an abortion. And that case actually did not get to the Supreme Court and ended up, ended up settling. But, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there for that one too. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wasn't there just for women's rights and the whole list of cases that supported LGBT rights. She was there for disability rights, for racial equality, for immigration rights, and like you said, abortion rights also. Um, one of the quotes that I saw from her that was just, it just said who she was. Uh, she, she said that she supported all these different things because the more people that were equal, the better. Isn't that the truth? And that's just, it's such a simple concept you kind of have to wonder why every justice on the Supreme Court doesn't live by that value because that to me is what our country is built on. Everybody is equal under the law. And it's been interesting to me over the last few days to see women talk about it in ways that, you know, women are now allowed to do this or to allowed to do that. And to me, it's not about allowing, because that's all about men um, and men allowing women. No, it's about um, asserting our right, exercising our right, um, expressing our right to do things. Um, and it's not about men giving and taking uh, from, from women, to and from women. So, um, and I think she, if you read her opinions, she has that core where she doesn't speak about our rights that mm-hmm. way as being allowed. Um, well, when she w- they're inherent, they're innate in us, and all of those rights that are innate in men are innate in women. When Obama had the audacity to name two women to the Supreme Court, uh, she was asked, how many women do you think is the right number for the court? She said nine. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that was so controversial. And she said, nobody thought it was controversial when there were nine men. So why all of a sudden is, is it controversial that I should say that there could be nine women? You know, it, it just makes sense to me. I, I think one thing that she'll be remembered for, 
going to what David just said and you, Patty, as well, about equality is that she wanted everyone, and I, I mean, to really be looked at not from a stereotypical way. So whether you were LGBT, whether you were black, whether you were Hispanic, whether you were a woman, you know, all of these stereotypes surrounding how we think about each other and what roles that we should play or not play, I think if you look at her life's work as a justice and on the DC circuit, as well as in her advocacy, it was really saying, look, we've got to look at people um, by what they do and and the merit and and the and the experiences that they've had in the Lily Ledbetter case, mm-hmm. you know. That's a great example of here you have a woman who worked uh, for, I believe it was Goodrich, for 20 years and was consistently during that entire time being paid much, much less. Firestone. Than her, uh, okay, Firestone. Yeah. <laughs> um, she, right, and she, but she was a plant manager and got paid consistently less over the course of 20 years. And so in her dissent, when she said, you know, court, uh, the fact that you are saying that she can't make a claim for the wages that she has lost because she was not paid equally doesn't make sense because how would she know? You know, as a woman in the workplace, you're not gonna go ask whether or not you're gonna get paid uh, like a man would. Well, well, not just that. Not, not just that. Normally at work, I don't know about you, Patty. Do you ask your coworkers what they're paid? No, it's it's, you a, just it's always been that. a taboo thing. Yeah, you don't do that. I mean, even if it's not taboo, I just don't ask other people in my office how much are you paid. So, her dissent. One of the things that she said was, uh, "You only have a certain like 180 days or something to file a discrimination suit based on pay." But she said that's not something that you even know. Um, and pay dis- disparity is cumulative. It's something that you might have come in being paid less than another coworker who's been there a year longer than you. Um, but that assumes that you know what that person is paid. But it's when that person gets a promotion and or a pay raise and you don't, and then you get a pay raise, but it's not as much as the other person, and you don't know those things. So it took... Uh, Lily Ledbetter years till she found out and Ginsburg said it's cumulative it's just not something that you find out the minute you go to work there and she was facing retirement right and so Mm -hmm. in her in Ginsburg's dissent she said Congress this is an opportunity for you to fix this and uh, that is actually exactly what Congress did very shortly thereafter and said well of course um, and so then you got the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which was both signed, you know, on the first day, I think, that he took off. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, one of the things with a new conservative justice coming in... Um, I think conservative is, a, is an, a, an, an inadequate word. <laughs> to describe uh, this nominee. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> with a non-progressive coming in, <laughs> who will probably not be as up on 
oh, like maybe pregnancy issues as uh, some of the other justices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And as somebody who's probably not on the side of equality necessarily, um, what is Lambda Legal's strategy, uh, do you think, or what, if not Lambda Legal, if you haven't come up with a strategy yet, uh, you know, what are you thinking going forward for the next however many years? Well, so I can I can say that we are in a process right now that began prior to Justice Ginsburg's death, looking at, you know, what do we want to prioritize, how do we want to prioritize it, and how do we want to attack those things that we have listed as our priorities. So that's currently in the process. Um, but I think with respect to a couple of practical uh, considerations are with respect to Trump's having stacked the federal courts and he has appointed over 200 federal court justices and federal law most of it stops at the federal courts in fact 50,000 uh, cases are decided a year within the federal courts and the federal courts are now much much more conservative than they have been in a very, very, very long time, if not ever. And he has appointed more justices uh, to the bench than any president ever in the history of our country. And so if we then also have a Supreme Court that has, for example, Amy Coney Barrett, who has already expressed her views on same-sex marriage in that She's not really sure that Obergefell is going to be settled precedent the way that, of course, we look at it and most states have looked at it since Windsor is it's absolutely settled precedent. Um, but if you look at her views on that, if you look at her views on abortion, she's also saying that Roe v. Wade is kind of, well, you know, it's there, but it's within the purview of the United States Supreme Court to overrule itself. Um, she wrote a, a, a law review article, if anybody wants it, I'm happy to send it to you, in the Texas uh, Law Review talking about what does stare decisis really mean? Um, you know, does the court really have to um, apply its past rulings? And I think you might see uh, a conflict between her and Justice Roberts, because I think Justice Roberts has been very differential to precedent because of the institution of the court itself. So let me go back to your question. So what, what, can, what can be being done? Where can we get our LGBT community, um, you know, helping out our own rights? It's a couple, couple ways. One is it's voting. Um, but as we know, I think it's fair to say that there's lots of voter suppression when it comes to uh, folks of color and, and LGBT folks of color. Um, and so, but getting to the polls, it's also going and asking that legislation be passed, things like non-discrimination ordinances across the board. So you have, we talked about this one of the last times I was here, but the Equality Act is pending before Congress, and we're likely to see in this upcoming legislative session a comprehensive state non-discrimination ordinance that would prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, familial status, the whole nine yards, and we're one state that doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then I think the third thing is, or really the second thing, 
Um, if you look at it as kind of buckets, you've got the legislative bucket, you've got the judiciary bucket, and then you've got education and changing hearts and minds. And that is um, making people aware of those disparities and those inequities that exist in the law um, that hurt us all. And that was one of Ginsburg's uh, overarching, I think, things that we can take away from her jurisprudence, which is, you know, when you hurt women, you're hurting men, too. Um, when you hurt black people, you know, you're hurting white people, because really what we want is everybody to have their fullest, best-lived life. And everybody needs to have those opportunities. And to the extent that they don't, then you need to recognize the experience of human life, like what she went through, and that had, you know, she was a pioneer, but she suffered so many what white males didn't suffer, which is why I think her lived experience came through in her opinions and in her jurisprudence. So it's the lived experience that people need to hear from our community and how it's different and, and why we need to be treated the same. Our guest is Shelley Skeen. She is the senior attorney at uh, Lambda Legal here in Dallas. Um, our, uh, uh, we're, we're talking about the, the legacy of RBG, uh, and we'll have more of that on Lambda Weekly here on KNON right after this break. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet. Uh, Patty is here with us today. Uh, our guest is Shelley Skeen. She's an attorney with Lambda Legal. And we're talking about the legacy of RBG. Um, Shelley, before we, uh, we, we want your opinion on this, but Patty brought in a, an interesting little piece. Um, yeah, I, I got a news alert about midday yesterday. And uh, the, just the idea that, that news outlets had to go find out for themselves um, that Vox and National Review have now confirmed that the religious group that this nominee that Trump has just made, this religious group, People of Praise, did not inspire The Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) 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 That you would even have to go seek out whether or not this group did that is, is... kind of telling i think of the whole situation (laughs) right so amy coney barrett has been criticized and and lambda would stand up and and criticize her definitely for this which is that she has spoken for the alliance defending freedom which is on the southern poverty law center's uh list of one of the hate groups in the united states and as y'all know the alliance defending freedom has brought several of the cases, i.e. Masterpiece Cake Shop mm-hmm. um, and Sweet Cakes by, well, that's First Liberty Institute, which is right here in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, up in Plano. Uh, that's uh, Sweet Cakes by Melissa, which looks exactly like Masterpiece Cake Shop, but without the problems. And so, uh, you know, she's also been a member of the Federalist Society at least twice in her in her career. And um, she has refused to answer questions about how her faith would inform her decisions. And I think if you look at other justices who were devout Catholics, when asked the question whether or not they would follow the Constitution or their religious views, they've always said, well, certainly I'm going to follow the Constitution and the laws of the land. She's been not clear. 
in her answers to that. Now, she said that she would recuse herself in death penalty cases, but recusing yourself takes you out of your job based on your religious beliefs. And if you're taking an oath to uphold the Constitution as the supreme law of the land and the laws of the United States, then you have to do that job uh, regardless of your religious beliefs. And I think that's what our law has found and determined over all of the years. You can't be, I'll say one more thing and I'll stop. You cannot be a law unto yourself. Your religious views cannot trump fundamental rights and equal protection so that everyone has the same, hopefully on the same playing field. How how does a Supreme Court justice recuse themselves from death penalty cases when justices, each justice is assigned to at least one of the circuit courts. Uh, and if the circuit court is hearing a death penalty case or, or a, an appeal on a death penalty, it can then go to the Supreme Court uh, for uh, the court to decide whether to um, uh, stop the... Stay. To, to give a stay of execution. Uh, you're very much involved in death penalty cases. I guess Just unless you pass them all to the court to decide, because yeah. if you recuse... Yeah, now this is something that she said during her confirmation hearings before the Seventh Circuit. Um, and so we don't know what she would, you know, what she would say during the confirmation hearings here. Um, I, I can say, though, that never before in the 231-year history of our republic have we appointed a Supreme Court judge uh, when the vacancy has occurred so close to a presidential election. Um, Bingo. You know, th- <laughs> right? And so this Well, but like what about power, Merrick right? Garland? That was, that was <laughs> 11 oh, months left right? in the term, seven yeah, months that, before an election. Yeah, but see, that's your math, uh, Patty. Uh, that's 11 months, which means you don't have time, and this is um, less than 60 40 days. 40 days, which means you do have time. Well, actually, there's not been a justice that's been confirmed uh, in in any month prior. So after July of a presidential election year, we've never had a justice that's been nominated or confirmed. And so if what you're really trying to do is listen to the will of the people and who they elect to be the next president, and which is what... Uh, the Republicans said during Merrick Garland's, uh, you know, 10 months that we went with only eight justices, which seemed ludicrous when mm-hmm. you have checks and balances. Um, and the three branches of government are all supposed to be, you know, doing their jobs to the best of their ability. Um, but when, you know, you're in a situation now where the Republicans said we want. Uh, we're not going to confirm Merrick Garland because we want to see who the next president's going to be because it was Obama's last term. And now they're saying they're doing the exact opposite. It's the hypocrisy, Deluxe. And uh, frankly, Mitt Romney this last week has just, you know, he's just riding the waves of hypocrisy right and left. Um, it just struck me so badly that he said, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and do a vote on this because of party because it, the generally, this is a complete falsehood on all levels, that generally the Senate uh, confirms the party that you're in, that's in the majority, that's my party, and denies the other um, 
the other side's stuff, you know, the nominees. And that's just blatantly untrue based on all the facts of past nominations. But what really struck me was this is the guy who voted to convict this, the, the so-called president of the United States because he was unfit. He should be removed from office. Removed. He's that corrupt, that, that awful. That unconstitutional. So he, now he thinks this guy's perfectly fit to nominate somebody and put him on the Supreme Court for life. That, the, the hypocrisy is just stunning to me. Stunning. I, I love this this tweet this, that's been floating around um, the, uh, the last few days. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to be replaced by a woman who walked through every door that Ginsburg opened for her so that she can promptly use her position to shut them all for others behind her. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It, it, it was like, boom. <laughs> well, just to, we'll see I what she what says about say. the 19th Amendment, but uh, that one should be repealed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, David... Well, um, David and I have gone round and round about the 19th Amendment for so long. He's like, you know, women should be pregnant and barefoot. Well, know? that's why I said I'd stay home to watch you do that. <laughs> um, still, yeah, go ahead, David. Sorry. No, go ahead. Because I'm going off in a completely different direction. Well, so I just add to Justice Ginsburg's legacy, which is, you know, there's many interviews of her where she says, you know, at the point that... You heard all men are created equal. What that meant was that meant all white men who held land, who were property owners, not white men who didn't own property, not people who were enslaved, and not women. And that part of the genius of the Constitution and our laws is this ability to have time move forward and these rights in people who were disenfranchised be recognized now there you know there's so much 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 work to be done and the fact that we are now 230 plus years down the road and we still don't have a much more equal society is in, in my opinion this is my personal opinion a shame mm -hmm. because yeah. everybody loses in my opinion, but anyway, that's so. But that's that's that is her legacy, and so that goes to Patty's point that she just made. You know, mm -hmm. some of the things I learned about her this week that I thought were fascinating. One of the things she did earlier in her career, and this was be before she co-founded uh, the Women's Project at the ACLU, she translated Sweden's judicial code into English. Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th th there wasn't Google Translate in 1963. She had to know not, Swedish. <laughs> not even close, right? And so she was, she went over there in part because uh, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't get a job. Mm -hmm. And and there was a strong feminist movement. David, I'm sure you read this, mm -hmm. uh, while she was in Sweden. And she brought that back with her to the United States. Yeah. I, I think one, here's what, something that's telling and just a short story, which is that um, Marty and she moved to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And at that point in time, she was working for the Social Security Administration and she got pregnant. And she was immediately demoted from her job in the Social Security Administration, which is another example of why 
you know, I think her life's work became making sure that folks as best as she could would be on an equal plane. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then she went to work uh, at Rutgers Law School. And she found out pretty quickly that she wasn't being paid the same thing that the male professors were being paid. So she sued. And Rutgers didn't know what they were up against. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I, I mean, this huge woman. Is she five feet? Is she? I think she was shorter than you, Patty. I think she was shorter than me. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to this, but she was such a powerhouse. They didn't even bother going to court. They just settled and decided to pay women equal pay. But it was one of the first lawsuits filed uh, that was an equal pay lawsuit. You know, I, I had the... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Patty. Okay. No, you're, you're first. I, I was just going to say, I, I had the great honor and privilege of of hearing her speak in person at McFarland Auditorium in SMU in, I guess it was 2011. And... Um, she was just a, a towering figure whose reputation preceded her well into that large auditorium. And she told, um, and, the, and the, the, the passion which, with which she recounted many of these stories about her own experience um, was just powerful. It was just so poignant in the room. Um, and, and you know that she brought that into her decisions, especially on cases of relating to gender, mm -hmm. um, because I, she couldn't not, <laughs> you know? Agreed. And she, I, I like you, Patty, I, I've got, to, I actually got to meet her. Oh, wow. Um, many, many people have, you know, a lot of people have, um, but she is shorter than five feet. And, um, it looks like this, obviously, I think you'll hear this from lots of people who clerked for her or whatever. It looks like this little, tiny, frail, sort of fragile person, but has a presence and a voice that is the antithesis of that in a, I think there was, uh, a, when she was getting ready to be confirmed to the United States Supreme Court, uh, a group of folks that she was on the Harvard Law Review with, remember, she was the first woman on the Harvard Law Review and the first woman on the Columbia Law Review, which mm -hmm. anybody, you know, the, you talk about the best Those are the two. Schools, the most competitive, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so this letter said, you know, she, pardon my French, I hope I can say this on air, it was, you know, she was a bitch. And, and her response to that was, better a bitch than a mouse. Mm. Yes. And she was certainly no mouse. So... There's a little trivia for you. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> no, that 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 describes her. Uh, she, she was this monumental figure who was just tiny, <laughs> and, and I think that her size and stature uh, worked in her favor because people didn't expect this towering figure to be so tiny. So, um, yeah. comment on her friendship with Antonin Scalia. They were best friends. Me or Patty? Yeah, you. Or both? Yeah, you. And, and how you think she might have affected maybe some of his rulings? Well, I think the lore is pretty, pretty strong in that everyone knows that they were really, really good friends. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I think there's a quote from Scalia where they asked him if he had to be on a, you know, a deserted island, 
who would be the one person, he didn't say his wife, mm-hmm. um, he said Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's who he would want to be on this island with him. And so they were, they were great, great friends. They both had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, and I think really that one, one case I can think of is the VMI case. So the United States versus Virginia is a case that Justice Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion in saying that BMI, the Virginia Military Institute, uh, could not preclude women or exclude women from being part of the class. And the only dissent was, was Justice Scalia. And it was a very strong, stern dissent. But he always said that he he attacked ideas and not people mm-hmm. and and you'll hear some if you go and you're a super geek you get on youtube you can just see a bunch of different um i guess youtube seminars where they're both being interviewed at the same time and they're talking about their relationship and their love of opera and and the humor between them is fantastic. And she'll say, she would say to him, hey, you know, I know you wrote that opinion in that case, but I really think it was wrong. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, so it's, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a tribute to two human beings that you can not have the same ideas, uh, but nevertheless be very, very close friends. And their spouses were as well. Mm-hmm. We need to take a break in just a second. One of my favorite decisions that she wrote was Bush v. Gore. uh, And she wrote the dissenting opinion. And normally at the end of a dissent, the justice who writes it writes, I respectfully dissent. Uh, Because they do have respect for each other. Uh, No matter what their political views are and where they stand, they, they do respect each other. At the end of Bush v. Gore, she just wrote, I dissent. (laughs) <laughs> and Justice Sotomayor and, and uh, Justice Kagan both utilize that technique um, today uh, um, as, as, as well. Because I think it does kind of like zing. <laughs> we need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet. Patty is with me today. Uh, Ron will be back next week. And uh, we're talking to Shelley Skeen from Lambda Legal. We'll be back with more right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. Uh, we're ending the show at 10 of, um, if you're a regular KNON listener, you know most of the shows are ending about 10 minutes of. Uh, we take those 10 minutes to switch out uh, studios, uh, wiping everything down, changing the windscreens, doing all that stuff t- uh, to keep safe, uh, wearing masks, and hope you're doing that at home too when, uh, whenever you can to stay as safe as possible. We're talking to Shelley Skeen, and we're talking about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, and um, uh, you, one, one of the stories that I saw this week was that when she was at Columbia Law School, she was recommended for a clerkship with Judge Felix Frankfurter, and he said he wasn't ready to hire a woman. Can you yeah, yeah. Her, um, let me, two quick things. One is, uh, here's another tidbit of, of fun. Uh, I think you all may recall that Justice Ginsburg and Justice O'Connor would often put a collar around their robe. Mm-hmm. And so it might be a, a white collar or whatever kind of collar they wanted, I think. Um, but when Justice Ginsburg was particularly 
unhappy about an opinion, and she had written the dissent, she would often wear a bright red collar. And so um, that's just one other little fun tidbit that, you know, she tried to dress up her robe a little bit because, you know, they're not so not so great. Um, and but and I, we know this is dissent collars now. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. It's a dissent collar. But I'm sorry, David, I... I no, no, no. That's the, I love these uh, little things that we're learning about her because her legacy and the reason she'll be missed is she was such a rich character. There, there was so much about her. One of the stories I loved, now the justices never let on what the decision's going to be ahead of time. Uh, they, they just don't do that. They, they could be rewriting up until the morning that, a, uh, that the decisions are released. Well, before marriage equality, she um, officiated at the wedding of one of her law clerks. Uh, he and his partner were getting married, and they were getting married in D.C., which already had marriage equality. And she said, she just gave a little hint. She said, under the laws of the District of Columbia and the Constitution of the United States, <laughs> I pronounce you husbands. Uh, and, uh, I mean, that made news because she was letting on. She was excited about that one. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I love that that um, phrase that's been on T-shirts and stuff, and like, not fragile like a flower, fragile like a bomb. <laughs> of yeah, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think there's there's some you know, uh, with respect to race, there's been some criticism of Justice Ginsburg for not hiring more clerks of color she kind of tended to hire from, you know, Yale and Harvard and the, and the main law schools. Mm. But there's an amicus brief that she worked on when she was at the ACLU Civil Rights Project in Georgia. Uh, Georgia. And in that particular case, it was looking at whether or not the death penalty is warranted for rape. And, and she, despite what we're all talking about here, she really was very conservative in her views. She was very deferential to um, legislatures for the most part to the extent that, you know, they were not violating fundamental rights and equal protection. She's like, you know, this is not the purview of the court. We need to defer to the legislators, legislature, and I don't think that people really realize how moderate she was. I wouldn't call her a judicial activist. I would call her a strong dissenter, which, as y'all know, dissents often become uh, the law of the land at some later point in time mm -hmm. when, for example, society's more ready for it. But in this amicus brief, she talks about how you, the death penalty should not be applied in rape cases because the folks that are going to disproportionately suffer from that are going to be people of color and uh, the history of you know upholding white women's purity and and so forth and i i think really a beautiful and nuanced amicus brief that if folks aren't aware of would be would be worth a read in looking at her racial justice lens and tell us about that. Well, I, I just think I think I just more or less talk about it. That she had a real mm. understanding of you know being in the South and oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and who would suffer. I mean, if you look at who is incarcerated in our country, mm -hmm. you know it's it's black men 
um, you know, I can't even give you the numbers, but it's, it's I want to say it's 80%. Mm-hmm. It is ridiculous, the number of black men that are in prison. And so they would have been the ones that would have been uh, in a rape-type situation that would have disproportionately been affected by a law that made it legal to have a death penalty in a, in a rape case. And she said, look, this is not... This is not where we need to have a law like this. You know, and when you said that she was really very moderate, she was not a fan of Roe v. Wade. She believed in abortion rights, but she wasn't a, a fan of the uh, of the, that decision. She said she would have preferred something more incremental, and she also said that she would have preferred it um, decided under uh, the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, the equal yeah, equal protection equal protection and, thank you equal protection process. clause um, because she thought there would be fewer uh, dissents and, and attacks on the decision had it been found differently so Texas in Roe v. Wade Texas had a probably the most stringent abortion law that was on the books and I want to say there were 13 states that still had, don't quote me on this because I'm a little off, I'm sure, but there were about 13 states, not unlike Obergefell, that still had abortion on the books. And so what she felt like was uh, wrong and the, or what the court did that was an overreach was that they could have simply struck, stricken the Texas law um, because of the way it was written, but rather what they did is they came in and said, you know, we're going to make it so that any state that still has an abortion law on the books, mm-hmm. all of those laws are now stricken. And so she felt like that was a little too much. A, a little bit too fast. And, and, yeah, and again, she was for abortion rights, but uh, she just thought it should have been done more incrementally. We are out of time. Shelley, I want to thank you so much. Oh, you're, well, thank you for having me, and it's a great, a great subject and a, and a beautiful human being who's made, I think, all of our lives better. I, I uh, think we might have to have you women. back soon uh, when a Supreme Court justice is, uh, is confirmed next week. Well, I just, uh, I guess, blessings to all of us. Uh, may we all be healthy and safe and and persevere and see those people in front of us uh, for the beautiful human beings they are. Yes, absolutely. so much. And and our guest next week is Scott Pogansy. He'll be talking about the Brandon Woodruff case that we've been following for the last two or three years. Um, And uh, we're going out with some music from a guest of ours several times, Sonia. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you all. Play, and it pleased the Lord, but you.